Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. Long, a time, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This ends the reading of God's word. Children ages 18 months through kindergarten are now dismissed to the Little Landing and the Little Landing toddlers. Good morning, faith family at the Landing. Let's continue to worship the Lord by looking to Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 6. Join me as I call on him for help. Father in heaven, I come before you in the name of your precious Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that whatever esteem resides in our hearts for him today would surge many times higher because of these few minutes that you give us to spend in your powerful, life-giving, soul-saving, sun-glorifying word. Prepare us for the table. More than that, prepare us to go out into the meal and the Lord's Day and the, the week that you have laid out before us eager to exalt Jesus Christ in our hearts more highly than we ever have before. One would think that Advent season, Lord, is a time easy to exalt Jesus, but it's far easier to exalt 10,000 other distractions. Even, even some of our good traditions have lost their savory, Christ-like nature. Some of the music, some of the movies, some of the online internet engagements, some of the concerts, some of the stories, some of the traditions and meals and gift giving, some of the practices that we've enjoyed decorating in so many good things seem to function just fine without Jesus. We're not okay without Jesus. The world needs you. We need you. The church needs you. I need you. Come and speak to us, Lord Jesus, through your word. And show us your infinite superiority over prophets and angels and over everything. I pray it in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. How great is Jesus in your life? Does everybody know that Jesus is so precious to you? By the decorations in your home, by the way you talk, by the traditions of your Advent season, by your clothing, by the way you spend money, by the way you carry yourself, by your politics. Does everybody know you love Jesus? 
Does everybody know the landing stands for Jesus? Does everybody know that every song and every sermon and every teaching for the children and everything that we do is to promote and glorify and placard high and highlight the pleasantness, the sweetness, the goodness, the superiority of Jesus? The writer of Hebrews was concerned in his day, as many of us are in our day, that even believers were drifting away from the centrality and beauty and goodness of Jesus toward other more dramatic things. In the day of the writer of Hebrews in the first century, probably before 70 AD, there was attention on angels. I read a statistic this week, 80% of the people in the United States think there are angels. They believe in angels. Angels are actually something of very big interest in the United States. We're a very spiritual nation. We're growing more spiritual. Atheists almost have nobody who care about what they say anymore. Because we're so very spiritual, we want to know what angels are like. And even good and bad angels, we have such a, such a closet interest in bad angels. Demons, we call them. There was a an allurement, an enamorment in the time of the Hebrews, chapter 1, in the first century, that made angels very interesting. To the Jewish people, angels were very important. Angels were the ones who gave the law, according to Galatians 3 and Acts 7. Angels were responsible for executing God's judgment over Egypt. All the ten plagues happened at the hands of angels. Angels were so very powerful that as they were sent out and ministered God's purposes and plans, the angels themselves seemed to carry all the weight, all the power, and all the authority, all the dramatic, world-altering effect. And so angels began to be worshipped. There's even religions that you could be exposed to, or maybe some religions in your past, where angels are held up and they're worshipped. They're prayed to and talked to. And, and figurines are made of them, and they are highly respected and valued in some active religions today. All of those religions are mistaken when they do such things. Merchants, video game creators, greeting card companies, Hallmark movie creators, occult purveyors, many of them make entire livings promoting angels. In the day of the writer of Hebrews, he's concerned that the church has lost the centrality and the, and the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's probably true not only in the first century, but in our hearts as well. And so this passage has a prophetic voice in my life and in yours to elevate Christ to his rightful place because the angels of God, real and powerful as they are, hate it when we worship them. They always point us to Christ. They always point us to worship Christ. And Christ is no angel. There was even confusion that some would say, it's, it's odd and incomprehensible to think of Jesus as both man and God, and, and somehow that God came to earth in the incarnation, whereas now Jesus of Nazareth is both God and man. That's impossible. 
How can you comprehend that? And, and even more incomprehensible, how could Jesus, being both God and man, die on the cross? God can't die. So there is evidence then and now that they thought of Jesus as an angel. That would make sense. That makes sense if he goes to the cross. That makes sense if, if he was born to Mary and Joseph. If he was just a carpenter's son and if he was arrested and if he was crucified and if he was handled in such disrespectful ways, he wouldn't be God, that God would never let that happen to him. But he could have been an angel. And that's actually quite popular as well. But it's wrong and it's false. It's even blasphemous. Jesus Christ is no angel. The writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does what I trust the Spirit of God is doing in our hearts right now, after Howard read this, this powerful passage of Scripture, elevating, with the help of angels who surely are present in this room, the centrality, the superiority, the infinitely higher value of Christ himself, who is both God and man, who came to earth, took on flesh in order that that flesh might be crucified for sinners like you and me. I want to show you four reasons why Christ is superior to angels that the passage gives us. First, he has a superior name. Second, he has a superior existence. Third, he has a superior inheritance. And fourth, he has a superior importance. First, he has a superior name. Do you see that in verse 4? Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The name the writer gives him is son, but we know from Paul's writing in Philippians and Ephesians, the name fully given to the Son of God is Jesus Christ, and that name is superior to any name given to angels. Why? Because it's the name of Jesus Christ given to the Son of God born to Mary who will save his people from their sins. Wasn't it glorious just to hear the Wenger family read that out of Luke today? Thank you guys so much for reading that to us. And thank you, Lord, for showing us that the name of Jesus is superior to any name the angels have ever been given. Nobody smacks their finger and says, oh, Gabriel. Because the name of Jesus is the name so precious that it's the one often perverted into profanity. The name of Jesus is the name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus is precious, which is why it is under such debate, under such argument, under such difficulty. You've heard me say more than once when I was asked to pray to open the Congress at uh, the state of Michigan, I had to send my, my exact wording in ahead of time so that the head of the Michigan uh, legislature could agree with the wording I used, and I prayed in Jesus' name. And he scratched that off. And I said, then I'm not coming. And finally, the guy who invited me to come, who was a believer, advocated, and they allowed me to say, in Jesus' name, to open the Michigan Congress back in 2010. And I thought, small victory. Apparently, the name of Jesus carries quite a bit of power around here. Because you can't say it unless you insist on it. 
The name of Jesus is precious beyond words. The name of Jesus is the most precious name that we should exalt. We should say with affection and joy. We should never allow ourselves to be uh, influenced by teaching that minimizes the name of Jesus. We should never allow ourselves to be made to laugh at jokes which mock Jesus. We should never allow ourselves to in any way let the name of Jesus be set aside. We should be saturating our prayers and our songs and our sermons and our conversations with the precious name of Jesus. Resolve right now that you will say with the angels, I am going to cherish and value the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, higher than any other name. And I am going to let the name of Jesus Christ dwell richly in me so that it comes freely out from me. And I will always exalt and treasure your name, Lord Jesus. Say that to him, even in your heart right now. The second reason the writer of Hebrews says Jesus, the Son, is superior to angels is because he has a greater existence than they do. I get that from verse 5, the first half. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my Son, today I have begotten you? The answer is none. Yes, sometimes the scriptures in the Psalms or Genesis 6 and Job 1 call angels sons of God, but that's a different category. It means they're created by God. The sons of God gather Genesis 6 or in Job 1 and elsewhere in the Psalms, but that's not specifically the phrase, my son, and they are not begotten of God. Verse 5 in the first half here in the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 2-7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That was David writing in Psalm 2 with reference to his son Solomon and other kings after had been called the sons of God, begotten of God. They were foreshadowing and prefiguring the victorious King Jesus who would be my son, the son of God the Father, and begotten of him. They are foreshadowing and prefiguring the reign of King Jesus. As we sang, King Jesus has always been king, and yet when he achieved his death on the cross, winning for himself a church, demolishing and destroying the work of the enemy such that the enemy is dealt a death blow and exalting the, the name and vindicate, vindicating the glory of the Father, Christ sits down at the right hand of the Father. We saw that in verses 1 through 4 last Lord's Day. And he is declared Son of God. Paul says it this way to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who has descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So when we read Psalm 2, and when the Hebrew writer reads Psalm 2, he says, oh, that's not just about David and Solomon, that's about God the Father and God the Son. That's about Yahweh and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who Himself is God. You can see it even more clearly in this wonderful term, begotten. It means when God in eternity past looked upon Himself, He looked upon the person of His Son, and together they looked upon each other with perfect affection and worship and adoration. 
From eternity past, Christ has existed as the Son. He became the Lord Jesus Christ, born to Mary and Joseph. But as the second person of the Trinity, he's always been the Son, and he's always reigned over all that he has made. C.S. Lewis has a helpful quote, famous, and I thought many of you might be familiar with this, but it's worth introducing to those of you who may not be and reminding ourselves if you've heard this. It's a right and helpful understanding of this word begotten. Why is it so important? Lewis says this, When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies, a beaver begets little beavers, and a bird begets eggs which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest, a beaver builds a dam, a man makes a wireless set, or he may make something more like himself than a wireless set, say a statue. If he is clever enough as a carver, he may make a statue which is very like a man indeed, but of course, it is not a real man. It only looks like one. It cannot breathe or think. It is not alive. Lewis and many other careful readers have recognized that right here, quoting Psalm 2-7 in Hebrews chapter 1, we're told something glorious that makes Christ infinitely more superior than angels and all other creatures. He's begotten of God. John calls him the only begotten son. That's why he's worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship and praise by all the angels and by all creation, including all humanity. In Hebrews 5.5, what does this begotten have to do with us? Listen to Hebrews 5.5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, and now Psalm 2.7 is quoted again, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now think with me. This might be new for you. It was new for me. It's a new discovery. Hold these two ideas in your mind together with me right now, just as we observe Hebrews 5.5. 5. When Psalm 2.7 says, Son, you're the only one that I call mine that I've begotten, and you're not going to clamor to be a priest, but I'm going to appoint you to be a priest, a great high priest that's going to die on the cross for the sins of the people. Those two ideas come together. He's begotten of the Father, and he dies for the sins of the people. In fact, the very reason Christ is begotten of the Father from eternity past, our tiny minds can't even comprehend it, is so that he would come to earth in flesh and become our great high priest, offering himself as a sacrifice for us. Those two ideas had never come together in my mind before. But they're as plain as can be right here in Hebrews 5.5. 5. His appointment as a priest is absolutely necessary for him to have been the only begotten Son of God. No angel can die for your sins. No other human being merely can die for your sins. Only the begotten of God in the flesh can die on a cross for the sins of the world. Absolutely glorious. Christ is superior because he has a greater name, because he's the only begotten of the Father and dies for our sins. Third, he's superior because he has a superior inheritance. He has a superior inheritance. When he dies on the cross, he gathers for himself 
a bride. He redeems all things, Colossians 1.20, and he gathers for himself a bride to delight in, to enjoy. I get that from the passage quoted in the second half of verse 5 back in Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1.5, second half. See how he introduces it, or again, and now he's introducing another Old Testament passage. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's a quote from 2 Samuel 7, 13 through 14. In our study through 2 Samuel, next year we'll get through this chapter. 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14. David again is talking about Solomon. Solomon's being exalted as king. And God says, he shall build a house for my name, referring to Solomon, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's what the Old Testament writer reads in 2 Samuel 7, and he says, that's actually the father and Jesus the son. That's foreshadowing not only David and Solomon and all the sons that might come after, but that's foreshadowing David's final and perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son inherits all the blessing and joy of the Father. The Son receives a bride. The Son receives all the blessings of heaven. The Son receives all the blessings of the creation He created. The Son receives all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. The Son receives all the nearness and the sweetness and the intimacy with the Father. You realize that when, when we come into the kingdom of God... The Bible says in Galatians 4, we're adopted into the Father's love. Realize that it was Christ himself who was adopted before us. He came into the line of David by being adopted through his earthly father, Joseph. Here, we are told that God the Father and God the Son are sharing all the joy and all the blessing and all the inheritance because the Father is the Father to the Son, and the Son rejoices in being the Son to the Father. The wonder and the, and the sweetness and the glory that that applies to us is this. If you're in Jesus Christ, you too are adopted in Christ, and all the favor the Father lavishes on the Son is yours. That's not a fiction. All the blessing and all the joy and all the goodness that the Father has for the Son is yours when you're in the Son, clothed in Him, wrapped in His righteousness, identifying in union with Him. So Paul could say to the Corinthians, when he's trying to settle the Corinthians down about squabbling over who was of Paul or Cephas or, a, or Jesus, they were proud and comparing one another and they were divided as a church. Here's how he cuts the legs off of their pride and division. Listen carefully. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says to the Corinthians, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. The only way that could be true is if they're in Christ. Whether Paul or Apollos, Cephas or the world, or life or death, or the present or the future, all are yours. Did you hear him say that? The world, life, death, present, future, it's all yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Maybe the most powerful passage in the book of Hebrews describing our union with Christ that we share as the Father and the Son are one together and we are in the Son, therefore all the blessing is ours in the Father, is Hebrews 2. Listen carefully, verses 14 through 16. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Christ himself, 
likewise partook of the same things. The Son became flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not an angel that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You see, angels are not united with Christ. And we're not united with angels. We as believers are free and we're united with Christ. The most important thing to say about you if you're a Christian is that I'm in Christ. And being in Christ, all the favor God lavishes on the Son, He lavishes on you. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized? He came up out of the water and what did the Father say? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. If you're a believer, you know what God says over you? You're my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. No angel can promise that to us. No angel can die to produce that for us. No angel can unite us to the Father the way the Son does. The writer of Hebrews is holding out these highest and glorious realities to make us go, Oh, Jesus, you are so much better than angels. I'm sorry for getting distracted by anything the angels have done. Finally, the Son is superior to angels because He has superior importance. Maybe this is the clearest argument of all. Look at verse 6. And again, that word again introduces another Old Testament passage. When He, God the Father, brings the firstborn Christ into the world, He says, let all God's angels worship Him. Far from being worshipped by confused Christ deniers, angels refuse the worship that the world gives them, and they offer all their worship to the Son. They bow down before the Son, and they give all the honor and praise and glory and worship to the Son. In fact, they adore and delight in the Son themselves. This is a quote here in Hebrews 1.6 from Deuteronomy 32.43. It goes like this. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. And that gods there is interpreted as angelic beings. It's repeated again in Psalm 97. Over and over, the Old Testament says, Angels worship God and God's only begotten Son. We saw this in Revelation, do you remember? Twice John bowed down to the angel because the angel had given him such a stunning vision and revelation of the future. And twice the angel had to say, don't do that, worship God. Wherever angels are active in your life, they are most certainly seeking not to gain your affection or attention or distract you from worshiping Christ. In fact, their aim is that you would worship Christ more because of their voice and involvement in your life. Revelation 7 verse 11 says the same thing. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Luke 2, 13 and 14. Do you remember Christ is born in Bethlehem to Joseph and Mary and the angels appear to the shepherds and it says suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angels love worshiping Christ. How do the angels worship? And here's a clue for us as we ask questions. How do we live this out? How can I join the angels in worshiping the superior Christ? 
Hebrews 1.14, we'll look at this in a couple weeks to come, but look down in chapter 1 ahead with me to this one verse answering how the angels minister. Are they not all ministering spirits, referring to angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? God sends angels into your life and around you, beneath you, above you, ahead of you, and behind you, and your children, to cause those who are trusting Christ, those who will inherit salvation, to be blessed and protected and served. Oh, Lord, send angels to strengthen my son and his wife right now over in Detroit. Oh, Lord, send angels to strengthen those who are embattled in horrible wars in Ukraine, Sudan, Israel, and elsewhere. Thank you, Lord, that you'll, you'll be under the airplane as Cole and I fly to Ukraine in January. Thank you that you'll be with these precious people as they go driving on roads and highways around Duluth, Minnesota after dinner today. Let all the work of angels glorify Christ and make everyone who benefits from the work of an angel say, I give thanks to God in Christ for the work the angels have done. For he sent them. This is why it's so clear when you read the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well and look through church history. When you see angels at work, you're asked and invited and instructed even by the Holy Spirit to look past those angels and say, it isn't just about the angels, it's because God sent them. God sent them. Angels are meant to serve and protect us. Listen to this passage. Here's a brand new insight. I've never seen this passage in this light before. Again, this is something I'm just discovering, but I'm convinced with all my heart it's true. You test it. Matthew 18.10. Listen, I'll read it for you. Jesus is speaking. See that know that you do not despise one of these little ones. He was talking about the little children. He, says, he said earlier, to these belong the kingdom of God. So see that no one despises these little ones. For I tell you, ground for, I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. What does that mean? You see the picture? You see the question I'm asking? Jesus says, I've got little ones here. Precious little ones. The word here is, is little children, and it's all-encompassing. Before they're born, after they're born, when they're needy, when they're receiving care, when they're growing up, when they're being instructed, when their souls are being built up and strengthened. These little ones, all these little ones, don't let anyone despise them. Don't let anyone kill them in their wombs, mother's wombs. Don't let any of them be misused or harmed or afflicted or violated or, or kidnapped or or. or Spoken against, used, violated in any way. Why? For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Here's what I think that means. My observation, my understanding of that verse is this. If God sees children being harmed... He nods toward the angels who are always looking at him, and they are sent to wreak havoc and wrath from God 
upon those who harm little ones. That's how I understand that verse. Are angels exacting God's wrath upon those who harm children in our world today? Yes. Don't think you can lay unholy hands against a child and not have the almighty wrath of God commanded against you. In places where there's war, in homes where children are not valued, in churches, schools, all manner of places wherever children are in any way dishonored or violated, God has angels looking at them and they're ready to be sent and they have the capacity to wipe out entire civilizations and more. Have you ever heard of the name of a woman named Marie Munson? M-O-N-S-E-N. She was a Norwegian missionary. She was short. She's just over four feet tall. She was white hot for Christ. She was sent out by the Lutheran church in the 1800s, late 1800s. She died in 1962, the year I was born. She was sent out from Norway to be a missionary to China in the earliest early 20th century, she endured the Boxer Rebellion and many other difficulties that you might know about in in Chinese history. In the 1930s, she had developed quite a strong reputation as an evangelical gospel-proclaiming missionary. She had helped to train young men to become pastors of several churches in the rural regions of China in the 1920s and the 1930s. During one quite famous event in Marie Munson's missionary ministry in China, She had a mission compound built where she had done much of her teaching and training. Vicious bandits, Chinese who hated her, they were part of this Boxer Rebellion, they hated all Westerners and gospel proclamation, they came against her missionary compound. They came into the village and they began to loot and and pillage and burn uh, homes and steal anything of value and kill people who tried to stop them. One of these bandit raids came into the very village where Marie Munson's missionary compound existed. And many of the people grabbed their valuables and they ran to Marie in her missionary compound thinking they'd be safer with her than they would be even in their homes. All day long and all night long, for an entire 24 hours, bullets were whistling past the heads of all those who were gathered in Marie's missionary compound. Gunfire, loud explosions, the sounds of many people outside screaming and suffering. It happened for an entire day until they ran out of energy and out of bullets. And finally, they left. Marie Munson, in her biography, says that several came up to her later and they asked her if they might come to her compound for protection because they noticed no one in her compound was wounded or hurt. And they said, you have special protection, Marie. And so could we come the next time the bandits return? Marie said, what do you mean by special protection? And the people in the community said, three soldiers, tall and shining, stood on the high roof of your gospel hall, one at each end and one in the middle. And a fourth was seated on the porch over the main gate, tall and shining. 
These soldiers had kept watch in every direction, and they were taller than any of the other soldiers we had ever seen. Neither Marie nor any of the Christian friends inside her compound had seen these tall, shining soldiers. Later, Marie Munson said she believed only the non-believers in her community living nearby had seen these angelic protectors to convince them that God takes care of those who trust him. Let your worship this Advent season exalt Christ as highly as the Bible does, as highly as heaven does, as highly as the angels do. He has a superior name. He has a superior existence. He has a superior inheritance, and he has a superior importance. Angels came to announce and sing at Christ's birth. Angels served Jesus in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan and ministered to his tears in the garden before he was arrested. Angels explained to his disciples about the empty tomb that he was risen, and angels explained to those same disciples when he left the earth and ascended to the Father's throne that he would return in the same way on the clouds. Surely at his death, when Christ the Son of God is hanging upon the cross, both God and man, 12 legions, 80,000 angels are standing before the Father, leaning in, weapons at the ready, primed and ready to say, Lord, you nod and we'll fly down and we'll rescue Jesus from the asphyxiation, from the shame and the nails and the lash, but the nod never came. The father said, stay. Why? So that the scripture might be fulfilled. What scripture? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Would you pray with me? We exalt in you, Jesus, over the word because the angels teach us to do so. We exalt in you, Jesus, over the table because the angels teach us to do so. Your word in all its power and clarity, in all its unmatched authority, teaches us that you, Lord Jesus, are superior. And so we worship you with all creation. We worship you with our minds and our hearts and our souls and our wills and our bodies. We come now to this table to take of the bread and the cup, recognizing that these are nothing in and of themselves, and they don't even transform into anything when we lay hands on them or ingest them. They're simply pointing us to your death your resurrection, your body broken, your blood poured out, and the good plans of God through Scripture that were fulfilled in your death upon the cross for our salvation. We want to exalt you, Lord Jesus. We want to take of this bread and this cup in a worthy manner, discerning your body, knowing that it was for our sin that you endured the cross. And while the Father and the angels could have rescued you instantly, they held back so that we might be rescued. What a supreme and glorious Savior you are. What a privilege it is to know you and be loved by you. What a, what a great wonder it is to proclaim your name. Oh, oh let the name of Jesus echo uh, through the buildings and all through the, the uh, 
people's hearts and all through the decorations outside of Bentleyville next Sunday night because we sing songs exalting Jesus. And maybe you'll give us conversations with people to exalt Jesus. And maybe, maybe you will open hearts to believe for the first time in the salvation that's found in Jesus alone. Lord, I pray that you would now bless the worship of your son Jesus at this table by all who come, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord and is saved. Be glorified in the way that we take of this bread and this cup. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.